I remember growing up and my mom saying, this is in Mississippi, and she would see neighborhoods where like all of a sudden all the houses were for sale and she and it would be in the white part of town. And she's like, a black person must have, must have moved into the neighborhood because at that time, having a minority in your neighborhood would lower the value of your home. And so these are practices that have been in place historically by our government to keep individuals in certain parts of, of neighborhoods. Now, the, the part that race plays in that in terms of social determinants of health, we know that in those minority neighborhoods, there are more likely to be to a higher propensity of tobacco ads, of alcohol, less likely to have choices for fresh fruits mm-hmm. and fresh, fresh vegetables, less likely to have green space to be able to get outside and move and to exercise higher levels of crime. Um, just the built environment is not supportive of a good of good health. All of these things, we know that the uh, property value is lower. So that means our education system and what is funding our public schools in that area is going to be less. And so education suffers. So certainly race does come into that discussion when we're talking about social determinants of health, specifically because of res- racial residential segregation. And when I talk about social determinants of health, I like to think about the social determinants of health as a tree and each determinant of health is a branch of the tree. And what matters is where your tree is planted. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopal, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell. She is the senior site lead and section head for women's services at Oshner Health, the largest health system in Louisiana. She is also the medical director for the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative and Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review, which is a part of the Louisiana Department of Health. Thank you so much for having me. I have been really looking forward to this conversation and you've been doing so much important thought leadership in Louisiana and nationally. So I'm keen for everyone to, to, to learn from you and to hear your story. So to get us kicked off, why don't you tell um, our listeners a bit about yourself? Like what led you into medicine and into the field of women's health and public health? Yeah, so I am originally from Meridian, Mississippi. I'll tell you about my story, how I got into medicine. I decided in probably junior high, I wanted to be a doctor. Science was the one thing that challenged me the most. And fast forward to college, my junior year of college, I was home for Christmas break. And so I was going to see my OBGYN. He said, oh, I hear you want to be a doctor. What kind of doctor do you want to be? And I said, oh, I want to be a pediatrician because I love kids. And he's like, yeah, you don't love them when they're vomiting on you and they're crying. You just want to be a pediatrician because you've never seen any other doctor. And I was like, well, that's kind of true. He said, come back at 530. We're going to go do a C-section. I said, okay. So in that two and a half week I had for Christmas break, he treated me like a third year medical student and allowed me to triage his patients to attend deliveries, to attend surgeries, all of these things to really introduce me to the field of obstetrics and gynecology. And I loved the fact that it was medicine, but it was also surgery. I really, really appreciated that it was focused on women and women's health and therefore my health. And I felt like I could really relate to the patients. And so I was sold. I knew I wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology. I later had a focus on wanting to find a cure for fibroids because my mom was diagnosed with fibroids not knowing what they were. (laughs) I started doing research and realized there weren't many options for treatment. And so clinically, I really do focus my practice around 
treatment options for fibroids, helping women to remove their fibroids to get pregnant, and then taking care of them throughout their pregnancy as well. Can you explain that for our listeners who may not know so much about this topic about fibroids? Sure. So fibroids are tumors of the uterus. They generally are benign. There is a cancerous type, but it's very rare. But they generally are benign and they can affect women in various ways from heavy menstrual periods to pelvic pain. If they have fibroids during pregnancy, they can have difficulties with preterm labor and growth restriction during pregnancy. And I think for me in particular, what also made me very interested in trying to find options is that Black women are more affected in their reproductive years from fibroids. In general, 80% of Black women will have fibroids by the time they're 50. And and also 70% of Caucasian women will have fibroids by the time they're 50. But Black women are more affected in their reproductive years. And because of implicit bias and, and some other factors from a healthcare system, the options that are given to Black women are usually limited. They're not really offered all the things that are available for treatment. Really interesting. So so thank you for sharing that background and into how you got into the work you do. Now, state, the state of Louisiana has been going through so much in the news. You've got the hurricane, COVID-19, at least at this period of time, has really hit the South hard in states like Louisiana. And you also deal with extreme poverty for significant pockets of your population. Explain to me how you think about health equity in your context, being in Louisiana, and and, and what you think needs to happen to really move the needle on health disparities. And I just asked you that question broadly before we go into some themes in women's health. Yeah, so thank you, KP, for recognizing that. It's been a rough couple of years with the pandemic and then just recently Hurricane Ida. And as we mentioned, we're already uh, a state that is um, considered very rural and we also uh, are a state that that is poverty affects us. So in terms of health disparities and health outcomes, we know the two big drivers are implicit bias and structural racism. And so we really do have to attack both of those. And as we address those, that then should address the social determinants of health that lead to things like you were mentioning, the lack of economic stability, all of the things that go along with that. So from a broad perspective, we have to look at systemic policies and laws that that have led to these systemic disparities. Mm -hmm. How do you see the state doing at this point? I mean, so many states are starting to really think intentionally about health equity from a policy perspective. I know you also work with the Department of Public Health out there in Louisiana. What are you How do you see it in terms of where you think the state is today? I have to tell you, so I started with the Department of Health as faculty for the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative in 2018 when the collaborative was launching Mm -hmm. and became the medical director in 2019. In that time frame, there has been significant growth in the fact that we are looking at health equity. I have to say, I feel like we led this in the Perinatal Quality Collaborative. We decided when we were conceived and we were starting that we were going to focus on health equity. Um, Many of the other national initiatives that we're looking at maternal morbidity and mortality, we're looking at only clinical causes. So hypertension, hemorrhage, those were the two leading clinical causes of maternal mortality at that time. Mm -hmm. And yes, we were looking at that, but we also had an aim of decreasing the disparity gap. Okay. so, you know, with that, speaking to hospitals about implicit bias and structural racism, I can tell you when we first started this, we were doing a learning session with our hospitals that were part of the PQC in October of 2018. 
And we were just introducing the topics of implicit bias and the difference in equality and equity, very basic terminology for health right. equity. And mm-hmm. we had two hospital teams walk out on us in the middle of the presentation, walked out, like not during Why? the break, well, they in the just middle of the presentation even... because they felt oh, offended by the conversation. So when we think there's only been three years that we had teams walking out to now we have all of our teams working on health equity. I think that is tremendous growth. And that's just what we're doing through the PQC. There are other initiatives that are taking place throughout the Department of Health, as well as some legislative changes to start to address health equity. Let's talk specifically about maternal mortality, because what I want to do is have you help draw the line between racism and implicit bias and health disparities and maternal mortality. We know that Louisiana has the second highest maternal mortality rate in the U.S. from what I can see in the National Center for Health Statistics. Unpack that for us, like why is that the case? And then help people understand how racism and implicit bias tie to those negative outcomes. Sure, so when we look at maternal mortality rates um, and we can look at Louisiana, we can look look nationally, a few things that that we'll mention. When you look at the data that's, especially from the CDC, it's mostly looking at pregnancy-related deaths. We now, in Louisiana, as I'm the medical director of our Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review, we review all deaths, regardless of the cause, at the time of pregnancy up to one year. So when you start looking at deaths from that perspective, it really paints a bigger, broader picture. So we're not just looking at what happens in the hospital or that six weeks. So actually, we just Mm. released our maternal mortality report for Louisiana looking at 2018 deaths. And our three leading causes of death are drug overdose, a homicide, and motor vehicle collisions. And so for me, that really speaks to social determinants of health. Again, those are things that are happening outside the hospital system. Not to say that we as clinicians don't have a part to play in being able to improve those outcomes. In fact, one of my colleagues, Maeve Wallace, who's a researcher at Tulane, did a study and found that just being connected to the healthcare system decreases um, the rate of maternal mortality from things like intimate partner violence. So not saying the clinicians don't have a part to play, but it's not just about what's happening in the hospital. But if we do think about what's just happening in the hospital, that's when we really start to see implicit bias and how implicit bias manifests in microaggressions, so the the fact that we have a lack of respectful care in the hospital, we don't elevate the voices of our Black women, that really speaks to implicit bias. And the data backs that up. A Black woman with a college uh, degree is twice as likely to experience a severe maternal morbidity compared to a white woman with an eighth grade education. So if we have now wow. adjusted for all of those social factors, economic factors, education factors, and we're still seeing Uh, a a difference in the outcome, this speaks to implicit bias. Now, that's with the understanding, and not everybody understands this, that race is a social condition and not a biological one. So as I say when I did this presentation, there is nothing biologically different about me as a Black woman that says I should experience a severe maternal morbidity. But because of the social conditioning and the way that I would be treated because I am a Black woman, this is the risk factor that makes my risk of having a severe maternal morbidity higher. That's fascinating. And actually, as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking about something and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
when we think about social determinants of health, I've, I generally feel like people abstract race from that. They, they want to say it's poverty and other factors, which we're talking about now, like social conditions. But if race itself is a social construct, then we would, there's a strong case to be made that race should also be explicitly a social determinant of health. I don't hear that talked about in the mainstream so much that way. I kind of hear race talked about separately than SDOH being more like it's poverty, but not laying in that intersectionality. Am I thinking about this right? Or There's definitely some intersectionality. There was a term that I learned when I was at Johns Hopkins getting my master's in patient safety and healthcare quality that I was not familiar with. I was familiar with it because I am a black woman that grew up in the South, but I didn't have a name for it. And there's something called racial residential segregation, meaning black people live around black people, white people live around white people, Hispanic people live around Hispanic people, Asian people live around Asian people. Some of that is by choice and we choose to live in different areas because we feel comfortable. But a lot of that is by design through redlining and through the historical ways that the government has controlled mortgage lending. And uh, I remember growing up and my mom saying, this is in Mississippi, and she would see neighborhoods where like all of a sudden all the houses were for sale and she and it would be in the white part of town. And she's like, a black person must have must have moved into the neighborhood because at that time, having a minority in your neighborhood would lower the value of your home. And so these are practices that have been in place historically by our government to keep individuals in certain parts of, of neighborhoods. Now, the, the part that race plays in that in terms of social determinants of health. We know that in those minority neighborhoods, there are more likely to be a higher propensity of tobacco ads, of alcohol, less likely to have choices for fresh fruits Mm -hmm. and fresh fresh vegetables, less likely to have green space to be able to get outside and move and to exercise higher levels of crime. Um, Just the built environment is not supportive of a good good health. All of these things, we know that the uh, property value is lower. So that means our education system and what is funding our public schools in that area is going to be less. And so education suffers. So certainly race does come into that discussion when we're talking about social determinants of health, specifically because of res- racial residential segregation. And when I talk about social determinants of health, I like to think about the social determinants of health as a tree. And each determinant of health is a branch of the tree. And what matters is where your tree is planted. That is really nicely laid out. Thank you for that. And it relates to a theme from the podcast we released last week with Professor Neil Lewis Jr. on this exact topic of, um, he talks about the racial wealth gap and how because we don't live together, we basically still live in a segregated way and that white people live amongst white people, black folks amongst black folks. And so then we can't see each other. And that actually is part of the problem in being able to break down some of these stereotypes and racism is that- And that's so important because this is reinforcing that implicit bias. So how do biases for? At first of all, everybody has biases. Everybody. You have them, I have them, we all have biases. That is a a neurologic way that our, our brain accommodates all of the information that we receive at one time. We cannot process all of that information. And so our brain takes shortcuts and it takes those shortcuts by seeking out patterns. And those patterns come from our social conditioning. Now, if you are a white individual and you've never interacted with black people, where is your conditioning? Where is your pattern coming from? It's gonna come from the media. Think about how black people have been portrayed in the media. Let's think about the historical context of how women, black women in particular, and the archetypes 
that have been portrayed in the media. So if you think about that, how black men are portrayed, how Hispanic individuals are portrayed, if you think about that and that's that conditioning, that social conditioning from the media is the only way that you have interacted with minorities, then you are going to find you are going to form negative biases towards those minorities. And in the healthcare system, it is foolish to think that we as providers, nurses, doctors, whoever, that we walk into the healthcare system and we all of a sudden drop our biases. We don't. Right. And we express those in microaggressions and in the ways that we treat black and brown people individually, how we treat them differently and how we give them health care in a different and negative way. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to um, want to ask a couple questions here. So let's talk about solutioning. So I want to start first with looking at the internal system. So how we address implicit bias you know, and racism inside of the system. So what type of programs might you be aware of or that Oshner Health System might be working on to kind of work this issue and try to change the culture and the way people see each other? Yeah, I think one of the first things that happened that was really like a turning point, I think, for Oshner was with the death of George Floyd. And our leadership took it upon themselves to say, if this is what's happening externally, what's happening here? And so our CEO, our chief medical officer, at that time we had just gotten a new chief diversity officer, started to have conversations with Black leaders, with Black physicians, with Black individuals that were just employed, just to hear what our story was. And they were very receptive to what we had to say and really wanted to see things change in, within our healthcare system. One of the first things that we did was to do implicit bias training um, for all of our employees. So we have a two-part series that we created. A third part is um, being created now. And in the first part, it was just what do you think and how do you feel to just start to make individuals understand how they may have biases towards minorities, towards different people with different sexual orientation, just how gender differences, just what biases they may mm -hmm. hold. And then in part two, for them to see how those biases manifest and what those outcomes are. And so we really began having those com right conversations about race and racism and bias and how it feels to live in each other's skin. We created a Physician Diversity and Inclusion Council. I'm one of the co-leads and we're looking at creating new policies and procedures and processes for how leaders are are identified. One, how leaders are identified, but also how they're selected. Okay. So that when there's a chair position that's open in a department, it's not necessarily that person that's been groomed for that position because that's the system, right? That's the system of inequity right. that continues. How do we make the process of looking out, doing a, a, a search to make sure we're getting diverse candidates, ensuring that we have a certain number of diverse ca uh, candidates, the, the, the Rooney rule or the Rooney rule from football, but making sure we have enough diverse mm -hmm. candidates. And then what does that selection committee look like? Do you have diverse people on that committee to then be able to appreciate that diversity that that individual is bringing? So, so looking at unmantling some of the implicit bias that we have, uh, excuse me, some of the structural racism that we have within our own healthcare system amongst providers and leaders, but then also being aware of our biases so that we are not, so that we are well, being aware of our biases to start to make changes 
so that we don't experience those or, or pr- produce those microaggressions that affect our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of that internal work. And let's talk about now for patients or the people in the community. I think it's really interesting when you talked about these other drivers of mortality, when you look outside of pregnancy related deaths. So you talked about drugs, overdose, you talked about motor vehicle accidents. Like this is interesting. I mean, how do you think about now like interventions and programming when you look at that broader context and what are some of the things that you see that are working that either you're working on or you and your colleagues? Yes. Yeah, so for the um, Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative, this month we just started a new initiative. It's called ISAID. So it's improving care for the substance exposed dyad, meaning the mother and the baby. And so with that, we are working on helping our hospitals establish, establish best practice for understanding stigma and bias towards individuals that suffer from substance use disorder. We do not treat those patients well when they are in the hospital. And so making sure that we understand our bias and that we are not um, mistreating those patients so that they feel comfortable coming forth and saying, I have this issue, I have this problem and not being fearful of of the healthcare system. Um, Also working on improving screening so that we can early identify patients that have substance use disorder so that we can get them into treatment and then also education for providers on doing medication-assisted therapy as that is the um, gold standard for treating substance use disorder during pregnancy. It is something I would Mm -hmm. have to say, for me, I completed residency 13 years ago. It's not something I was trained as a resident how to do medication-assisted therapy. Right. So MAT is new for me. And so if it's new for me, it's certainly new for my older providers. Yeah, <laughs> and so right. making sure that we create awareness around that as best practice and, and being able to, again, to be able to treat those patients. In our pregnancy-associated mortality review, we have also some recommendations around policy, around community social support that we hope other organizations will pick up and will help support small things. If you are a family member and you have someone that suffers from substance use disorder, knowing how to administer Narcan, making Narcan more available, all of these things to support for the community to support individuals with substance use disorder. And then when we talk about specifically pregnancy-related death and that element of maternal mortality for Black women, what do you see that works to reduce that mortality rate? Like what's out there that's working? Yes. So for the the Perinatal Quality Collaborative, our very first initiative launched in August of 2018 and we ended the initiative, although we're still doing the work, we ended the initiative in May 2020. And that initiative was reducing severe maternal morbidity from hemorrhage and hypertension with the goal to reduce it by 20% and to decrease the black-white disparity gap. Very proud to say we reduced severe maternal morbidity from hemorrhage by 35%, specifically Amazing. by 49% for Black women. For hypertension, wow. before COVID, we actually had seen a reduction of 22%. After COVID, that reduction changed a little bit to 12%. And we actually saw an increase in severe maternal morbidity uh, from hypertension for Black women. Okay. But the data, I was suspicious of this as a clinician and what I'm seeing in the hospital. And the data just came out that shows for women that have COVID-19 in pregnancy, they have an independent, just because of COVID-19, they have a higher risk of having a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Almost every patient I've seen come in pregnant in labor with COVID-19 also has preeclampsia. 
And so we know also that those women that have COVID-19 and are pregnant, they have a higher risk of a severe maternal morbidity just from COVID, of being intubated, of being in the ICU, mm-hmm. of even dying. All those are those things are are they're a greater risk for. And then we know from our COVID-19 data, especially here in Louisiana, Black individuals do suffer from COVID-19 at a rate higher than that, or at least from deaths we were seeing. The deaths were higher uh, amongst Black individuals compared to their white counterparts. So I do think we did not see that improvement in severe maternal morbidity directly because of COVID. But we do know Mm -hmm. that if you use improvement science to help implement best practices and you make sure those best practices are ingrained into the fabric of the work that you do on a daily basis, we see improvement in outcomes. I see. So was that the core element of the program, just taking the scientifically proven best practice, but just ensuring that it was happening? Exactly. If you look at um, research, so it's been shown that it takes about 17 years for, for translational research to go to bedside if you don't use improvement science. If you use improvement mm. science, that's reduced to three years. So through the Perinatal Quality Collaborative, we're not making the best practice. That's already done from a national standpoint. What we're doing is showing our hospitals how to implement those best practices. And we do that, not only show them how to do it, but we show them how to measure it. We have them report it to us and we have them stratify that data by race and ethnicity so that we can help them to see if they have any disparities in their care. And then we do other things to help them reinforce those best practices. Great. So can you explain what improvement science is for our listeners? Sure. So it really is doing best practices, measuring when you're putting the practice into place to know that if you are making a change, that change is leading to improvement. So we know that all improvement is change, but not all change is improvement. So we have to measure when we're making a change to make sure it's improving what we're doing. And then we do what we call a PDSA cycle. So once we have this improvement that we want to do, we plan on how we're going to do it. We do that improvement. We study it, meaning we measure it. And then we do our A. We either abandon it because it doesn't work. We adjust it because it works, but it needs to be adjusted a little bit. Or we adopt it and make it the new practice. So it's one thing for me to say, okay, we know best practice is to quantify blood loss out of delivery. Great. How mm-hmm. do you do that? Well, how do you right. measure blood loss out of delivery? There are a lot of steps that go into that. And what works in hospital A doesn't work in hospital B. If you're at a hospital that delivers 3,000 babies, what's going to work for you is different than if you deliver 1,000 babies. And so we work with our teams to figure out what is going to, what works for them. We help them with the planning, the measuring, and then help them with the adjustment. Um, We meet with them once a quarter through what we call a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And so help them to figure out if this is what your aim is and this is what you're what we're seeing in your measurement, what can we do in 30 days to get to your aim? What could we do in 60 days? What can we do in 90 days? And so that really is, in a nutshell, that's improvement science. That is fascinating. I mean, one thing that I've talked about with other guests is, on the one hand, health equity principles, but that a lot of reducing health disparities is about operationalizing equity. And what I'm hearing is the first time in our podcast series, you've heard someone talk about this concept of improvement science, because it sounds like that is a critical element of how we think about operationalizing equity alongside with what you described at the leadership level. So that's fascinating. And even from, you can even use an improvement science in, in equity. So when we do our chats with our hospitals, those 30, 60, 90 day plans, 
in addition to having an aim that they're working for, let's say that for that quarter, they're trying to implement quantification of blood loss. That's great. And we're going to help them with the 30, 60, 90 day plan, but we require them to also have an equity goal. And so we help them with mm-hmm. the 30, 60, 90 day plan towards that equity goal. We also, through the PQC, we have a birth ready designation. We just rounded up, just awarded our first round of designations where we are rewarding those hospitals for doing the work. And there's five elements that they have to meet, but one of those is health equity and patient partnership. And so we give them a menu of items that they can work on, whether it be implicit bias, whether it be putting that patient on the improvement team so you have that patient feedback or soliciting patient feedback in a way, not not a yes or no question, but calling patients to ask them, what was your experience like? And then using that feedback mm-hmm. to make changes in the way they deliver care. And so again, we use improvement science to help the teams figure out which of those initiatives they want to do to help improve equity in their hospital. That's amazing. And um, I like that very concrete connection point between improvement science and achieving equity goals. Let's transition to rural. So you and I have engaged with um, some national associations around rural health policy. Tell me about um, these themes in the rural context in your state. I know that um, I was looking at some information about a third of the state of Louisiana's population is black and you have a significant rural population. How does this look for your black rural folks and for people that are out of the city? Yeah, we definitely, as we are a rural state, we, in addition to being a rural state, we have maternity deserts. And so I think even more important for our state quality collaborative to exist and to be, because really when we're talking about reducing reducing that morbidity and mortality, a lot of it is about being ready for hemorrhage, being Mm -hmm. ready for hypertension, recognizing it early and being able to treat it. And if I am a level four hospital, which for your listeners, there are four maternal levels of care, national maternal levels of care. Four means if you had preeclampsia and ruptured your liver, I could do a liver transplant. So a four is a very well-resourced hospital. One is basically, I I can deliver your baby if you and the baby are healthy. But it doesn't matter if you're a one, two, three, or four. When a patient has an emergency, they're not driving two hours to get to a level three hospital. They're going to the hospital in their community. And their community may not see Mm -hmm. the frequency of, of events of what we call these high acuity and in that hospital, low occurrence events. And so really important that they, that especially important, those hospitals be ready for these, these conditions that we know are the, 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 the greatest risk for mor- mor- morbidity and mortality with hemorrhage and hypertension. And so what we've done through the PQ, we cover now 90% of the births in Louisiana, 42 of the 49 birthing facilities in the state are a part of the PQC. And so that is most of our rural, rural hospitals as well. And so we've helped them to develop those elements and to have those processes in place to have readiness so that um, they are, again, able to recognize those conditions early, able to treat them early and then get the patients to the care that they need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of how you look at those differential contexts. And it relates back to the social determinants of health issue, because in those areas that maybe only have a level one or two facility that's closest to them, it's really important to empower those sites to to reduce severe maternal morbidity, as you described earlier. Good. Talk to me a bit about the role of digital health. So, so many people are talking about health tech innovation, and we know that, you know, shiny objects don't solve all of our problems, but but they do have a role. Like digital health does have a role to play. So 
What do you see its role in, in solving and addressing these types of challenges? So I am a big proponent of, of, of digital medicine and telehealth. We have a program at Ashra called Connected Mom that launched in 2015, 2016. And in this program, moms are given a blood pressure cuff and they're given a scale. And through that, they're able to upload their vitals through their phone with Bluetooth capability that scale the blood pressure cuff, connect to their phone. And it, it uploads to their electronic health records so that we're able, the provider is able to get those. The benefit is that, again, we're able to get all of those vital signs. We can flip their visit to a what's called a virtual visit, very much like you and I are doing now, where we can interface right. through the computer and the patient is able to have, have stay where they are. <laughs> so it was essential during the pandemic when we had the stay at home order, we were able to still maintain care for our patients because they could be at home, we could, I could be at my house and we could still do our visit. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some visits that you can't do virtually. You have to come to the clinic, you have to come to the hospital for, but those visits that you don't, it just provides another way of delivering care. I definitely see this being a benefit to those that are in rural communities, like we were discussing, that need to get to, let's say, for example, the high risk doctor. How, for me to tell a patient that lives in Homa, Louisiana, which is about 45 minutes from New Orleans. For me to tell a patient that's in Homa that she needs to drive to New Orleans to see a maternal fetal medicine specialist for a 30 minute visit, I might as well say she needs to go to New York. It's the same. Right. It's the same. In her, in, yeah, in, in, for that patient, for that family. And a lot of what can, what they would have to drive in to, for could be done through a virtual visit because the doctor is not actually even touching them. They're reviewing labs, reviewing ultrasound images, giving them counseling on uh, high risk conditions. And so I do think mm -hmm. that digital health has a huge role to play. And I'm working on some policy and some um, some processes within the uh, Department of Health to see how we can incorporate telehealth. But I do think we have to be very aware, especially thinking about rural America, about the resources, the infrastructure around broadband, even for the urban community. We know in minority neighborhoods, again, thinking about racial residential segregation, Broadband is not the same. The number of towers is not right. the same. Cell phone tower is not the same. And so while telehealth has the potential to, to narrow this gap, it also has the potential to broaden the gap if we don't make sure that the infrastructure is in place and that all people can access whatever technology tools are needed to access the care. Indeed. Yeah. Without that intentionality, we basically deepen the digital divide as you've laid out so well. Look, I one thing I love about these conversations is how much I learned. I've learned so much from you today and a lot of the nuance of these topics that I feel like doesn't get shared often. I've just wanted to share a lot of gratitude to you for really helping us learn through your insights and expertise. I ask every guest this question in the podcast and I'm, it's come out in the conversation, but but why are you in on health equity? Wow, man, that's a big question. Um, you know, when I look back over my <laughs> career, and I'll tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with has nothing to do with medicine. When I think about who I am, my fabric, a lot of my fabric is around justice. And the funny story is I remember being in the third grade. So I was eight, maybe nine years old, must have been eight years old. And it must have been right before Christmas. It was November, December. And I have no idea where our teacher was at this time, but our teacher was not in the classroom for whatever reason. And we started <laughs> getting in this discussion and this one girl said she still believed in Santa Claus. And this other girl was telling her how stupid she was that she believed in Santa Claus. And 
when I tell you I was in this girl's face, I was like, if she wants to believe in Santa Claus, that is not your right to take her innocence away. That is not for you to do. We were, I was standing on a table <laughs> because I just felt like it was so unjust for her to take that away from her. So I think I say that to say it's a funny story. And again, I have no idea where my teacher was at this time that we got to the point that we were standing on tables. But <laughs> I say all that to say that I think it speaks to my heart of justice and equity is about justice. It's about what is right and what is fair and about everybody having the opportunity to achieve health equity and to achieve health outcomes that are good and being fair and being just. And so I do think it is my fabric and as I have matriculated through matriculated through school and my career, I've been involved in equity in different ways. I was involved in equity being on the Committee on Healthcare for Underserved Women for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, when at that time we called it cultural competence. And but I've just mm-hmm. continued to grow and just thankful that I've been given so many opportunities to focus on equity and to be able to give my opinion and to be able to offer my insight and and changes locally, nationally, to be able to hopefully see a day when when all people are given what they need to achieve good health outcomes. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now I know that for every kid out there that believes in Santa Claus, they need to come come to you to be their champion and advocate. So <laughs> I've just learned something new about you today as well. So that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for your leadership in Louisiana and in our country. You know, I know you're hard at it to improve a health and well-being out there in uh, Louisiana. So for Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell, we thank you for joining this conversation and all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at InOnHealth. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.